You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to continue in our worship as we go to God's Word. Uh, We open up the scriptures and we hear from God. Sometimes it can feel like God is silent, but we know and are convinced and convicted that whenever we open up the scriptures, God speaks to us. He um, He means to commune with us, and so it's a great delight and privilege to, to read uh, this morning. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26, we'll go through the first seven verses of chapter 4 as we continue in our series through, through Galatians. Let's start reading in chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Do you see here, we, be, we come to some familiar passages uh, in Galatians, maybe some memorable passages to some of you. Reminds me of one of my first movies I ever saw. Uh, one of my earliest memories of watching a movie was uh, Annie, you know, after the, after the play Annie. And this, of course, is about a, a young orphan girl named Annie who finds herself living in one of the uh, richest fictional characters ever created. In fact, Oliver Warbucks uh, is the richest fictional character ever written. He is worth 10 zillion dollars. And that's actually what, that's actually documented, that's what he is worth. And that's actually a fictional number. You know, it's just, uh, it's just a little bit more than a bajillion dollars, right? So 10 zillion dollars. He's very rich. That's the point. They're wanting to make a point that you don't get wealthier than Oliver Warbucks, And this is an unlikely pairing. You have this orphan girl uh, who's lost her parents and she's living in an orphanage under kind of this dictatorial reign of uh, Miss Hannigan. And she finds herself linked up with Oliver Warbucks, this rich uh, business tycoon. And he has no time to entertain this young girl. Uh, He's even bothered by her when she finds himself kind of in the midst of his world. Um, But this girl is so special. Her charm eventually wins him over. And uh, this titan of industry, Oliver Warbucks, becomes known as Daddy Warbucks. They rent out an entire movie theater just so that they can go to the movies together, right? They travel the world. They fight, you know, the bad guys and lock up the criminals trying to exploit Annie and uh, take advantage of her defensiveness. Annie is just too charming for Oliver Warbucks. Um, She breaks through his tough shell, he adopts her, and Daddy Warbucks finds loving parents for every single girl in this orphanage that Annie was a part of. 
So he rescues all of these girls and it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. You know, adoption is this beautiful story of rescue and redemption and acceptance. It's a story of belonging and family. And so there's a parallel uh, with stories like this, with the biblical story. There's a parallel between the story of Annie and the biblical story, even portions that we read this morning. It's a story of adoption, redemption, reconciliation, taking two unlikely parties and bringing them together in a relationship and bond of friendship and love. But with a twist, a twist that sees uh, the bold claims of Christianity, unlike any other world religion, any other claims in the world, and so unlike the Annie story and any story we've ever heard. But it becomes a good news for us if we understand this story with a twist, which we'll get to in a moment. For anyone desiring a relationship with God, for anyone who feels disconnected, broken communion, anyone who feels like at a distance with God, desiring a a friendship with God that is so personal, so meaningful, so close that it could be best described and only described as a relationship between a loving father and a child. That's what we see in our passage. It's an attempt to describe this relationship that we have with God as our father. And to help us, we want to see three things in this passage as we walk through. We see our desire for belonging as orphans, as ones disconnected for God, our tendency towards division, and finally, our privilege of adoption. And so first looking at this desire for longing. That's true enough for us, isn't it? This desire to connect, a desire to belong. Uh, It's true for the audience of this passage as well. As the Apostle Paul, the author of this passage, is speaking to this group of people desiring to to be connected with God, but also with one another. They're new Christians. They're new believers. Paul is telling them what it means to really belong to God, to belong in this family of God as Abraham's offspring, as Abraham's family, because they knew that those who were considered Abraham's family were heirs of the promised blessing of God. And who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And other people are coming along and they're starting to distort uh, the message of the gospel. They're starting to distort the message of Christ and how a person becomes part of that family. Like, well, you have, to, you have to keep the law of God. You have to perform these rituals. You have, to, uh, you have to be morally good in all that you do. And so there was some of this insecurity that started to form with the, with the family of God. And they started to think, well, how can we know for sure that we actually belong to God or not? So they're worried. They're starting to feel doubt. They don't feel safe in their relationship with God. And once feeling like children of God, they're starting to feel once again like orphans, disconnected. They never really can be so sure if they really belong to God and if God truly loves them as a father because how could they ever know? If there's ever any sin in our life, if there's any every internal struggle, if there's ever anything in our life that we wish we were more like God, how could you know for sure that we are actually pleasing God with our life and that he loves us like a father to a child? And so there's some insecurity that is starting to form with them. They want to be inside that family, belonging to this privileged relationship that God doesn't have with every person. 
And we want to belong. We have this desire because we are made in the image of God and God is a communal God. He is one who has this this, uh, eternal relationship within the Godhead of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing within community. He makes us in his likeness. We are hardwired for connection with God and connection with one another. So much so that we have this longing. It continues to draw us into community. That doesn't mean all of the times we're drawn into community, it's fruitful for us or a blessing to us. Sometimes it's very painful. But I've never come across a person who doesn't want to belong to something, that doesn't want to be connected to someone. I mean, there are over 620 Facebook groups. You know that? (laughs) 620, oh no, I'm sorry, 620 million. Yeah, that's 620. I was like, that doesn't seem like a lot. Seems like there'd be at least like five more. 620 million different groups in which to belong on Facebook. That's a lot. And we, and then we could probably even triple that. There's just so many things that we can belong to. There's a reason for this. We're made for connection. We're, we're made to say, I'm a part of this. This is where I belong. And we see that in our lives. We see, in, we see a desire for connection everywhere we go. Uh, sports teams, uh, pop culture or different musical genres, uh, styles of dress, uh, um, tastes in food. Uh, we, we can belong to a, a fitness center. We can belong to a rec center. We, can, we, can, we follow a sports team. I mean, we have our brand. We have our group. We have our club. We all desire to belong to something, but there's a danger of wanting to belong this much. It's a, it's a risky pursuit because if you're on the outside of a relationship and you want to be a part of a relationship and be on the inside of a relationship, there's really two options for us. The one is that you, could re- you can try really hard to make, to kind of fit into all the different rules for how to belong to that community, whether it's membership dues or attitude or uh, different character traits, and you can be a part of that group. I mean, I know that's kind of like a really immature way of thinking, but I'm sure we've all been there at some point. You want to belong, it's really hard, and you begin to watch people that are a part of a group that you want to be a part of so that you can then shape your attitudes and your habits and your your looks to be a part of that group, to feel like you belong, and then you connect. You begin to dress and talk like the people you want to be like. That's a way of belonging and connecting. But another option is like, if you don't want to do that, you're like, oh, I would never do that. You resist belonging, right? You say, I don't want to belong to that. And so you go in the other direction. You do your own thing. You rebel against it. Who, who's, the, who's the most popular singer today so that I can hate them? That's kind of the attitude. Like, who can, how can I just like, whatever's popular, I just want to go in the other direction. And it looks like you don't want to belong, like you don't want to connect, but it actually is a reaction against a failure that we feel for not belonging to much at all. There was once a group of guys in my high school that uh, there's a group of guys that, that did not make the, the varsity baseball team. And this group of guys started their own club. It was called the Yoohoo Club. And every day at lunch, they met at a table and drank Yoohoo. <laughs> you remember Yoohoo? They still have that. I mean, I've seen that in like 25 years. And so they had cards, they had membership cards, they had like vows to take to be a part. Just, I, I, just so you know, I made the baseball team. And so they, they all did this. They're drinking Yoohoo. It's like, we have to be a part of something. This was their connection. This was their value. We, we have to belong. And if we can't be a part of that, we got to be part of this. And it was fun. They're, it was actually quite, quite fun. And they're 
really great guys. But every Friday, they got together in the cafeteria, all drank Yoo-Hoo together. I bet if you just take a moment and just look around the world and just think about ways that your own life, about how you pursue connection. It's lonely to be disconnected. It's, uh, sometimes we desire it. Sometimes we kind, of, we kind of pursue isolation, but none of us, none of us can survive too long alone. And as we dig into reflecting on the beauty of relationship of belonging to God, it's good for us to see how we at times pursue belonging in one of those two ways. We try to shape ourselves according to the people we want to be like, or we run away from those people and start our own thing. But whatever we're doing, we're trying to connect because we're hardwired for that. Imagine an heir of a great, of great riches, of a great estate. He or she has been promised this great inheritance. And when they come of age, they will receive the full blessing of this inheritance. And when they do come of age, they will be rich and powerful and, and fully capable of, 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 all, of access to everything that they could ever d- desire. But until then, they live under the strict rules and surveillance and stipulations of this estate. They are under the oversight of caretakers and managers, especially when they are young. This is what it felt like to be an Old Testament believer and follower of God. Imagine these Old Testament people, this is who Paul is speaking to. He's saying, this is what it is like before Jesus. We have been promised this great blessing. One day that God will fulfill his promises to us, that he will rescue us from our enemies, that he will give us all spiritual blessing. We will have possession of all the things that we could desire, but most importantly, we will have God himself and he will have relationship with us and we will have relationship with him. But the law of God was meant to prepare God's people for the joy that was to come when God sent his son to rescue his people. But the Christians in this passage were using God's law in a different way. Not as a tutor, not as a manager, not as an overseer of their life until Christ came, but they were using the law of God as a means of acceptance with God. And Paul is saying the law of God is good, but not for that. The law of God can do a lot of things, but it can't make you loved by God. It can't make you lovable to God. They were using their obedience and and, and way of like doing what God said and their moral goodness as a way of feeling connected with God and a part of his family. And instead of feeling connected with them, it it was having the opposite effect. It was making them feel disconnected from God. They were feeling alienated from him, not having communion with him. And that's what happens. And we have that, that's the tendency that happens when we pursue God in the wrong way through moral purity is that it's our tendency towards the vision. That's something that we're so good at. In the time of the people in our passage, people worship all kinds of of natural deities. They sacrificed all kinds of animals to please God. They performed all kinds of spiritual rituals in order to appease God and to feel connected with him and find favor with him. We do it today as well, not in the same ways. We live for the approval of others. We worship pleasure and beauty and fame and recognition. And in our own ways, we make sacrifices in our life to feel like we belong and are connected with others or connected with God. 
And throughout our day, we, we, we do that. We, we are engaged in all kinds of, of spiritual activity or we abide by personal laws that we write for ourselves, or laws that people write for us or laws that God writes for us as a way of feeling that we matter in this world. And if we can abide by those rules, then we feel special. And if we fail at those rules, then we feel dejected and like a failure. But when our passage says that before we come to faith in Christ, we are held captive by the law, this is what it means. It means that attempting to secure relationship with God through our good works doesn't work at all. And the result is actually a deeper misery when we try. It puts us under this curse, the Bible says. It puts us under this, this curse of the law because if we are attempting to obey God's commands as a means of his, favor, uh, his love and favor, then what we have to do is obey everything that God has ever said. And we've already failed at that. And so it just puts us in this place of complete misery. Our natural tendency is to work harder for love, to be good, to make sacrifices, and then you might win God's love. If our belonging with God is based on how well we perform, consider how that might affect your relationship with God. Consider how it might affect your relationship with others. Consider how it might affect your relationship with yourself and how you relate to yourself. If you succeed at doing good and some tragedy then comes into your life, you might be tempted to think, well, God's not loving. God is unmerciful. God's not good. Because if I've done all these good things, then why would God treat me like that? So if our relationship with God is based on being good for him to earn his love, then when bad things happen, we think, well, maybe it's because of my failure or maybe it's because God is not very merciful. Think about if you fail, you might be hard on yourself. You wonder if God can truly love a person like you. Maybe you feel a sense of like this spiritual probation that every time you sin, there's this probationary period where you kind of have to work yourself back up into a place of good standing with God. And then there are ways that we treat other people. We tend to place value on everything in our lives. And when we look, when we look with favor on people who share the same values as us, or when uh, we look with derision on people that are different from us who don't share those same values, division happens. And verse 28 highlights some of these different divisions that happen in our life. Whenever we live by the principle that it's our character and record that saves us, there'll be no shortage of things that divide us. We will be divided ethnically, racially, we'll be divided politically, we will be divided socially and economically. And Paul is saying there's no shortage in the world of division. There's no shortage of opportunity to be divided with other people. And when we make salvation and relationship with God or others based on our moral efforts and impurity, we'll be divided in so many ways. I was at a conference recently. I was really encouraged by one of the speakers that said this, and I felt like it just fits so well for today. And he says this, he says, we are experts in division, but God is an expert in reconciliation. We're so good at it. 
I was like, that is so good. That is so good. That is so true. We are experts in it. We have this tendency towards division. We have a tendency to taking the blessings of God, the good things that he says, comparing how we fit into those things with other people. And those who don't do as good as us, we're going to be divided. Those who do better than us, we're going to feel that they are, have this kind of moral superiority, we're going to be divided. But God is an expert in reconciling. God is an expert in restoration. God is an expert of taking enemies and bringing them together in a relationship of peace. When we compete through our moral efforts for God's favor, we will always be in competition with other people. We always place value on people and for different reasons. The things that we're good at, we will feel morally superior and the things that we're bad at, we'll say, well, those things don't really matter. But we see a transition in verse four. Look again in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under their law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is here we see this wonderful privilege of adoption. You see, we have this longing for connection with God, but we have a tendency towards division. But then we see God's action and initiation to adopt us and bring bring us close to him. The Bible tells a story. A, a different, and different parts of the story create a stir in our, they, it stirs in our hearts some uh, real affection and a movement of affection throughout that story. In the beginning of the Bible story, we might see this delight as we consider the way that God has created all things and called all things good. We might feel a sense of peace as we look upon things at creation of just, there was rest, there was relationship with God, there was no sin, no guilt, there was no competing with one another. There was just peace as it should be and people were relating with one another, with creation and with God and with self as God intended. And then quickly we see this tragedy as sin entered into the world through rebellion against God. And it makes us feel this deep sense of sadness, this brokenness, right? This paradise lost, which has been said this. And then there's some hope as God says, but I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to help. I'm not just that. I'm going to fix what you broke. I am going to come in and I will not leave you. I will be faithful. I will restore this relationship that has been broken. And then there's a lot of waiting And throughout the Bible passages and the stories that we see in the history pages of scripture, we see all of this waiting, but we see God reaffirming his promises. We say, we see all these stories of failure and continued rebellion. And God says, even though you have failed, I will not fail. I will be faithful. And throughout the story, we're reminded that God will not give up on his people, that he is with them. He is bringing about his purposes for them. He he will not stop until his plan is complete. And then here we see, and then at the right time, at just the right time, when everything was set up as it should be, as God intended, God sent his son into the world. You see, verse four is not only the climax of this passage, it's the climax of of the entire Bible story. 
all of humankind waiting for this, the experience to be rescued from all the things that divide us, to be reconciled with God who we have sinned against, to be reconciled with one another and the promised presence of God to indwell us forever so that there's never a time we are ever alone, but God is always with us. His power indwelling us, enabling us to, to, uh, to, to be shaped more and more into the image of his plan for us. To be people that are no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive. That have a record of sin wiped clean and are seen as his beloved children. We're all waiting for that. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying just at the right time, this is exactly what God did. And this happens through the exchange of experiences. It doesn't happen the way that we think it might happen. Of us making our way to God. It happens through an exchange of experience. Jesus takes our experience on the cross and we take Jesus's experience as the beloved son who gets to call our God father. Our experience is one of sin and guilt and Jesus experiences that on the cross. Not just that, but the experience of being forsaken the experience of being divided, the experience of being alienated and abandoned. Jesus experiences this on the cross for us. And so think about this. What is the experience that Jesus has and has always had with God that he trades and gives to us? It is the love of the father as a perfect son. The experience that we get in exchange for the life of Christ is the love of the Father with all of its blessings, with all of its privileges that never ends. And this experience is not given as a reward for moral effort, but it's a gift received through faith in Christ. This is what our passage is telling us. We come into this. We become sons of this promise. We become heirs of this inheritance not through abiding by all that God has said, but, be, but through faith. Through faith in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit so that you and I could fully experience the reality of being God's sons. And I would love to see some hands go up right now and say, what about daughters? <laughs> what about daughters? This is, this is important to, to look at. What, this whole passage is talking about sons. It's talking about sons. Male and female, we become sons. What's happening there? This isn't to neglect females. It's not to neglect women. It's not to neglect daughters. But in the same way that all of God's people are called the bride of Christ, which isn't talking about a female experience with God, but rather a positional experience with God. When the Bible calls us all sons of God, he is not, he's not saying so in a sense of gender, but rather position and privilege. To be called a son is describing a position of privilege with God, a relationship that we have with God that only one other person has ever deserved with God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is that because of, his, of God's grace and, our, our, and, and through faith of our trusting in what Jesus did for us, the position and blessing and inheritance 
that Jesus has had with the Father from eternity past and for eternity into the future is ours. Is ours. In full force, with full blessing, with full power and goodness. In one sense, by faith in Christ, we become children of God. But in a particular sense, we become sons by faith. Heirs to all that God has. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The very phrase... Abba Father has been uttered only once in all of Scripture by one person in all the Bible and all the world who has ever been able to utter this phrase and mean it. It's an authentic and original utterance of Jesus Christ and Him only. And this phrase is new, it is original. And it is authentic only to Jesus. It's designated to God's only faithful son. And what this means is that all the privilege that Jesus has as the faithful son of God, unique to his own personal experience and righteousness, God has with no other person. But then he looks at us and says to us, do you want to know God, the father, like I know God, the father? And Jesus invites us into sharing in that very experience. There's nothing quite as profound as this. There's nothing as radical as this in all of the world. There's no connection like this in all of the world or any relationship. There's no relationship so profound and transformational as a relationship with God as our father that we have because of Jesus. To cry, Abba, Father, means that we can talk to God like children talk to their father. I think of those adopted children who are adopted, maybe not as newborns. You know, maybe, they, maybe they grew up not knowing their father. Maybe they lost their, their father and, and later in life they are adopted. And I imagine the, at first some hesitancy of these children to call their adopted parents mom and dad. A hesitancy, right? Some, some easing into, some warming up to this fact of, of having this kind of relationship. I know that formally there is this, technically there's this relationship of parent and child, but, but my heart isn't there yet. It's going to take some time. They're feeling their way into this relationship with their parents. And that's often what it feels like as Christians. Gaining a new perspective on our relationship with God. This is often how Christians feel who go on sinning in their life. They, they trust in, in God. They believe that he loves them and gave Jesus to die for their sins. But we go throughout this life making mistakes, sometimes intentionally rebelling against God. And sometimes it just feels uncomfortable to have that kind of connection with God. It feels vulnerable and maybe we don't even believe it. But we can talk to God the way a child talks to God. As a way a child talks to their father. We can think of God like a children thinks of their father, like a child thinks of their father. Paul in our passage references the different relationships uh, between a slave and a son. A slave is always worried about doing what they're told and doing the right thing for fear of punishment. 
He says, but we are not like that. We don't have that relationship with God like that. We are adopted. The relationship that we have with God is not one as like a, a, a borrowed worker or, a, or a, a forced slavery. It is one of family and privilege and affection. We get to talk to God the way a child talks to a father. We get to think of God the way a child thinks of a father. Because when my children are scared at night and they scream down the hallway for me, they don't cry out, Sir! (laughs) Sir, please come whenever you're ready. They cry out, Daddy! I'm afraid. It's that kind of access. It's that kind of affection. It's that kind of of ease of relationship, no matter what has gone on in that relationship, no matter what failures they have, have made in their life, when there is need, my kids cry out, Daddy, I need your help. And I'm not a perfect father, but our Father in heaven is. And I can think of good reasons why my kids would, uh, would be disconnected in feeling that way. Some, they have a record of my failures and I have a record of theirs. And we transfer that relationship that we have had with our earthly father for good or bad. A lot of times it's often traumatic and bad. We transfer that to our relationship with God. When we are in need, we can cry out to God because the spirit assures us that God is our father and a father who is perfect, a father who loves us without end. He cares about what is happening to us, not as an earthly father with imperfections, but as a holy and good dad. Maybe five or six years ago, I had my son uh, Cohen had a name for me in addition to dad. And his name for me was, get this, Pete. Now, that's not too strange because that happens to be my name. <laughs> but he's calling me Pete, which is strange because there are three people out of seven billion people in all the world that have the privilege of calling me dad, and, he, and he's choosing to call me Pete. You know, there's sometimes he'll, I walk in the door, he will run in and say, daddy. And then there's sometimes he'll look up from, the, from his iPad and say, hi, Pete. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, yes, that's my name. But there's three people in all the world that have the privilege of access that a child has to me. I'm your dad. Call me dad. Why would you not embrace that unique privilege? We have the privilege of of a relationship with God as as a child to a father. His name is God. It's his formal name, but he is God, our father, our dad. A, A title so intimate, Abba, father, a title so intimate, so connected that only one person who has ever lived has ever been able to have that kind of access. And he says, do you want this access? I give it all to you. Do you know that? Do you know that's the kind of access, the kind of relationship that you have with God through faith in Jesus? Because of our friendship with Christ, We can look to the creator of all things and know that he sees us as his child whom he cares for deeply. 
And I understand this may not comfort you. I understand it may even trouble you even more because you might feel I don't want a relationship with God like a relationship with my dad. Maybe your earthly father has caused wounds that still cause pain and confusion in your life. You know, I said that the story of, of, of the scriptures has a correlation with the story of Annie, and it does, but with a twist, and here's the twist. You see, Annie was an orphan, and, and Mr. Warbucks uh, was too busy for her. I mean, it was like she can be around here, and she can kind of, she can glean off of the privileges of being a part of my wealth, but just keep her at a distance because I have things to do. But Annie's charm wins over Oliver Warbucks and wins over his affection. And the relationship with God can often feel like this, that if we stay out of his way long enough, and if we are good for long enough, and if we are nice enough and just do what he says, that, that he will warm up to us. And in return, will give us his love and affection. And, then, and that means we're just trying to be the good kid to be adopted by God. The story of Christianity is not like the story of Annie in that respect. Instead, we see a loving father relentlessly pursuing his disobedient children. We do not see a stern and wrathful father annoyed by his children and then finally warming up to his child and adopting us because we are sweet, cute, and obedient Annie's a horrible story now that I think about it. <laughs> Not really, it's cute. He loves Annie because she was a good kid. That's not how God loves us. The opposite is true. He takes our experience, which is one of rebellion, which is one of disobedience, which is one of guilt and shame. Christ who knew no sin became sin for our sake so that we could be called the righteousness of God. He takes our experience on the cross. We take his experience. What is his experience? Righteousness, access, privilege, and heirs to the promise of Christ. Hopefully as we think biblically, we can transform some of our imperfect ideas and perception of God as father into a truer and more beautiful picture of what Christ has secured for us. God, our father is a perfect father. He's everything, even beyond everything that we need in an earthly father. He has everything. And more importantly, he has the complete access and enjoyment of the love of the father. And he says, I want to share this love with you. And Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, he prays. And we are told that if we ever pray for anything in Christ's name, we will get it. And so we have to assume then, biblically, as Christ prays, he is always praying faithfully. He is always praying in his own name. And therefore, his prayers are true and good and certain and will come about. In fact, his prayers demonstrate the very heart of God. And Jesus prays that you and I would have the same love with God that Jesus has with God. This is mind-blowing. How easy is it to forget this throughout our day? 
How easy is it it to feel disconnected from the love of God because of our failure to obey him? And the God's people in this passage have They have forgotten. They have become distorted in the gospel. They have forgotten that it is not by their moral effort. It is not by their character or record that they are loved by God and able to be treated as children, but it is because of what Jesus did for them. If it's true, if that's really true, then why do we continue to be afraid for what tomorrow brings? Why do we continue to feel insecure by our circumstances? Why do we feel the need to perform in order to be accepted by God and others? A child's not afraid. A child who knows that their parents uh, love them are not afraid about tomorrow. We know that we are secure in the father's eyes. Another one of my children, we went on a trip a few years ago and we come to this place that has a, a, a beautiful place on the coast of California and then just like this cliff that goes 30 feet down into just these jagged rocks. And then there's this rope that separates, you know, life from death. <laughs> and so we gather our kids and say, do not cross that line. And my youngest child says, why? If I fall, you'll just catch me. Never, yes, that's how perfect I am. You always think that. But that's not the way it works. I'm not that good or perfect, but to have that mind of a child, no fear, because daddy loves me. We don't need to be afraid. A child who knows their dad loves them that much isn't afraid of of whatever comes our way or uh, the blind corners that we turn because we know we're held secure in the love of God. And it's not, a, it's not a superficial love. It's not a secondary love. It is the love that God is capable of loving. Even Jesus, he gives to us. This isn't JV. It's not second rate. It is the, 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 the same spirit of God. Is, is, it dwells in us. The same power with which God loves his son, he loves us which, with. How easy is it to forget it? A child's not controlled by the opinions of others when they know that they are accepted by their father. It's the things we like to tell our children. If you're a parent, when our child comes home from school or elsewhere and they were bullied or picked on and we try to console them uh, in part by saying, it doesn't matter what others think of you because I love you. And they say, that's not good enough. <laughs> I want to be loved by others too. But we attempt to do that because we want them to know the power of a father's love, of a parent's love. That I accept you, the world can't touch you because of my love. A child willingly follows the instruction of a father that they know is giving instruction and commands that are motivated by love. We know that God's commands are motivated by love. We will, we will thirst for his commands. We will, we will have joy in being obedient. It will become not like this duty of, of strict adherence to his commands as a way to find his love, but because we are loved. The bottom line is this. By God's grace through faith, God now treats us as if we have done everything that only Jesus has done. By God's grace and through faith in Jesus trading his experience for us, God now looks at us as if we have done everything that his perfect obedient son has done. 
Can you, can you grasp that? Can you believe that? Can you let that dig deep into your heart so much so that it changes and transforms every experience that you have in this world? No matter what you have done, no matter what your record is, no matter what your story, you may even say, I, if you only knew my secret sins. Well, God knows and he is still delighted to adopt you anyway. Knowing those things, knowing those failures, knowing those insecurities, he still initiates with you. He still gives you the full measure of his love. It is boundless, it is far-reaching, and it never ends. And he sees you and treats you with all the affection and all the love that he gives Jesus. This is the good news. Let's believe it, let's walk in it. Let's rest in these truths. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We call you Father because you are our dad. You are mighty, you are majestic, you are worthy of praise and reverence and awe, but you are not only a God who is transcendent and other than us. You are a God who came close. You're a God who became man. You are one who came and dwelled with us. You did not look at our sins from a distance, but you rushed into the chaos of our lives, the sin within our own heart, you faced our greatest nightmare. You stared death in the face and you defeated death, pain, and sin so that you could welcome us into your arms as your beloved children. If God is for us, then who can be against us? If we are accepted then by your love, then we are never we are never disconnected. We are never without hope. We are never alienated. If you exchanged your experience for ours, then that means our life is so valuable. Everything that happens in it is for our good according to your purposes. Lord, help us to grasp these realities more deeply. Help us to let these truths transfer from a superficial sense to a, a deep abiding sense in our heart so that everything in our life, the way that we relate to you, the way that we view ourself, our self-worth and identity, the way that we look at others, especially those who are different from us, would all of those things be transformed because of the love with which you love us? Because of the love with which you love Jesus. Lord, be with us in this meal now as we remind ourselves and are reminded by you of the great access and blessing and privilege we have because of your sacrifice for us. Strengthen us in our hearts from one degree to the next, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.